0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City, New Jersey, the great state that is. I'm happy to be with you here. I'll be your host for this next hour. And uh, happy MLK Day, everybody. Everyone's celebrating it here in the US. If you're living outside the US, I'll also wish you a happy MLK Day. Uh, In past years of Tectonic, and Tectonic always falls on MLK Day uh, because it's always on a Monday. In past years, I have had some interview or theme that had something to do with uh, MLK or justice or anti-racist efforts. This year, it's not a direct. the the theme for tonight's show is not a not a direct connection to MLK Day, but there are some secondary connections. And uh, the reason that I'm um, I say that is because we are going to be talking about advertising, and advertising, as you know, is is, is um, bound up in the equity or inequity of the economy and issues of surveillance, um, all of of which in uh, in, in their downsides will hit vulnerable communities more intensely than more privileged communities. But the point I'm trying to make this evening in talking about Google's ad business is how it affects all of us, all of us. And so we're going to be talking with Craig Silberman, who is a national reporter for ProPublica, Craig Silberman with Ruth Talbot wrote a a recent piece on December 21st in ProPublica about Google's ad business, and the title of the piece is Porn Piracy Fraud, What Lurks Inside Google's Black Box Ad Empire? And uh, I'm really happy to present this interview to you because – it as I say the issues that we get to in this interview affect all of us even whether you're in the US economy or you're in another country what Google does and what Google allows to happen within its ad business affects everyone worldwide and you'll see or everyone where there is a a, a web a website or set of mobile apps that use Google's advertising program, which is just about all around the globe. Now, I'm gonna play this interview for you, and I I just wanna give you a heads up. We're gonna start by talking about Craig's research. Craig and Ruth, you'll hear, did a bunch of research on who is working with Google. And uh, you you will hear some advertising terms, and you might think in the first few minutes of the interview, Why are we just spending time talking about (laughs) how advertising works? And I just want you to push through that because the significance to the rest of us does come out in the interview and later in the interview. But we have to set the groundwork first so you understand what the research is that Craig did and and, and what conclusions he drew before we can get to why it's so significant for the rest of us. If you're interested, by the way, you can see a link to that ProPublica piece on the playlist at WFMU.org, click Playlists and Comments, and there's also a graphic that I have excerpted from the ProPublica piece, and I edited it down just a little bit. The heading of this little chart is called Over 380,000 of Google's Partners Remain a Mystery, and that becomes a key point in this interview. So you can see that if you'd like to see a graphic representation, uh, you can go to the playlist, if you're listening in the future, uh, this is the January 16, 2023 show, and you can go to either the archives at wfmu.org, or you can go to the one-page Tectonic website at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist for today's show, and you can see that graphic. There's also a link to the piece. By the way, I made a very embarrassing mistake <laughs> at the beginning of the interview when I interview when I introduced Craig, I mispronounced the title of the piece, I I said it was porn privacy fraud, which it's not, it's porn piracy fraud, but that's part of the introduction, and so the error remains, and so consider this my correction with my apologies. Uh, We're gonna go ahead and listen to this interview now. If If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, also go to that playlist where you can see the link and the graphic and everything else. And uh, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Craig Silverman from ProPublica about Google's ad business and how it impacts all of us. You're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. Craig Silverman, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you. Craig, you are a national reporter for ProPublica covering voting, platforms, disinformation, and online manipulation. And I can think of probably two or three of those that we're going to cover here in this interview. I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about a specific piece that you wrote with Ruth Talbot on ProPublica. It's linked on the playlist for listeners to click through and read it themselves. Dated December 21st, 2022, the story is called Porn Privacy Fraud what lurks inside google's black box ad empire how big is google's ad business craig and how much of google's revenue can we trace back to their ad business
1: yeah thank you for for reading it and for the question Uh, google's almost all of google's revenue comes from advertising and Its search is still its biggest operation, but Google also runs the world's largest ad network. Meaning if you run a website or you have mobile apps for iPhones or Android phones, and you want to get ads on your site or in your app and earn money from that, you can sign up with Google's ad network to have Google help place ads on that. And that business alone, which is the world's biggest kind of third party ad network like that, um, that brought in over 30 billion alone in 2021. And so we're dealing with really big numbers, a really big business. And one of the things I would just say on top of the numbers is that Google, it's gotten those big numbers because it has obviously widely used products that it places ads in. And particularly for that part of the business called programmatic advertising, where it's sort of the automated buying and selling of ads that takes place when you load a web page, when you visit an app, Google is instantly facilitating that buying and selling process of getting an ad shown in front of you. And because Google dominates all of the technology elements of that, has the leading stuff, whether you're looking to place ads or buy ads or what have you, it's not just, you know, the money flows from that. But Google also just has, you know, a really dominant position. And so for us, we wanted to look more at that and understand better This one piece of the empire which was this ad network where they're working with millions of of apps and websites we wanted to figure out like who is google paying money to who are its partners
0: you talk about the dominance of google in the online ad market and i noticed that in the piece you were careful to say that google is an alleged monopoly (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yes because it hasn't been i guess proven in a court of law although i'm looking forward to that day And so the fact that your research is turning up very disturbing results, some disturbing findings about what's happening in that online ad network, that's significant. The online ad business, as you say, tens of billions of dollars a year, dominated mainly by this one company. Can you describe how you went and were able to accumulate the data in order for you to do the analysis that led you to these conclusions?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So this started, this project started roughly about a year ago, uh, speaking with Ruth Talbot, who is one of our uh, data journalists at ProPublica. And I've been reporting on digital ads since about 2017. I've been really focused on ad fraud, all the different ways you can basically steal money from the digital ads ecosystem. And, And this is one of the things that to this day, I'm still, my mind is still blown that you know there's roughly around the world there's close to a half a trillion dollars a year spent on digital ads uh and so google takes a good portion of that more than anybody else but nobody knows where all the money goes if you go and you buy a billion dollars worth of ads sure you'll get reports from places like google and other places you buy the ads from but you will not be able to know where all of your ads appeared and you will not know who got all of your money for us Ruth and I the discussion a year ago was Who does google work with who are the apps and who are the websites that google basically is cutting checks to every month because they're placing ads on these publishers websites and the reason it was of interest to us is that a few years ago there was kind of an industry agreement which google was part of to come up with this transparency standard where you're supposed to list all of your partners all of your publisher partners and have a list of those publicly so that people could sort of check and be like, yeah, do you work with them? You do. Okay. And a buyer could have some certainty about this. And so most of Google's competitors started releasing these lists where they release, you know, well, we work with this website and here's the account ID in our system. And here's the publisher name. And, you know, that's that's who they are. And Google released a list and it's over a million account IDs they released an almost completely anonymous list of its publisher partners when everybody else was releasing mostly disclosed ones. So we decided, what if we de-anonymize that? What if we match these account numbers, these more than a million account numbers that Google has released to actual websites and apps? What would we find? And so that was our plan. We knew it'd be hard, but we didn't think it'd be super difficult. And what we realized, I guess about six or seven months into it was we'll never get to hundred percent. It is too hard. To actually uncover this. And so that's why we call it the black box ad empires, because Google is basically shunning an industry standard it helped create and saying, yeah, we're not going to tell you who we work with. And so we set out to try and figure that out. And along the way, we uncovered a bunch of things like ad fraud and piracy and porn sites that Google is monetizing in violation of its own stated policies, which is kind of a familiar refrain in the world of these tech companies. Their products and their operations are so big, they operate at such a big scale that they honestly do not know everything that's happening. And so when we brought a bunch of our findings to Google, this was news to them, even though it's their system, is what they said, really.
0: Uh, You talked about the buyers doing business with Google. A buyer would be an advertiser. So let's say, and you mentioned um, Nike and the piece. So this is all hypothetical. I don't know Nike's business with Google, but let's just say... You're Nike and you are launching a new shoe or something. I don't know. And so you want to pay Google a certain amount of money to put ads talking about your shoe and linking back to the Nike site all over the web and within mobile apps, as you said before. Google has its tentacles Mm -hmm. and everything online. And so Nike can say, here's a budget of, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars, but let's say... Nike says, we really like this shoe, so here's a million dollars. Google then goes and puts the ads on the, would you call them partner sites? Yeah. Within their display network. Nike might want to X out some of those partners, knowing that we don't want our brand associated with, for example, if it's a website that is committing... Um, copyright theft, <laughs> which is something that you found uh, in your research, Nike may not want to be associated with a site that's breaking the law or a porn site or other sketchy sites that are out there, or
1: even just they may Nike's brand guidelines may even say, you know what, we don't want to be on really overtly political sites either, and and so advertisers have their own, what are called brand safety guidelines. And so everything you described is correct. Um, You know, the buyer is the brand. They're using Google's tools to sort of say like, we wanna reach, you know, this shoe is gonna, it's aimed at men, we're targeting men between 18 and 40. We wanna reach mostly guys in the US. And if they're also, if they've shown an interest in basketball, we'd love to show them the ad. And so they'll input these parameters of the campaign and their budget. And then basically they say, like, take it away, Google, you know, find us these people uh, through Google's targeting. But of course, as you say, they often, if they're being responsible, they will upload their own list of sort of sites and apps saying, these are the ones we don't want you to put it on. So they're block list because Google, you can't really pick which sites automatically your ads should appear on. If you want, you could upload your own list of the only sites you want to appear on. But the whole, the the business pitch that Google makes is... Our targeting and our data is so good that if you just upload your own list of a thousand sites, sure, we could put your ads there, but you're not going to reach the right people. We will put your ad in a millisecond in front of the right person at the right moment. And we will be able to do that for you on any site where that person happens to be. And so that is the pitch of programmatic advertising is don't buy by sites, buy by audience, and Google's magical targeting will find them for you. Um, and you know the downside of that is you have to trust Google that it actually is finding these people. And then if you are trusting Google to do it, then you need to take the time after your ad buy is done to look at the you know, 10,000 websites and apps that Google placed your stuff on to see well, did it actually go in the places we would have wanted? And are these you know, the places that we would like our brand associated with? And that's where this unknown piece of it really comes. One of the pieces of unknown comes in is a lot of brands shockingly will spend a lot of money and then not spend the time to really analyze where their ads appeared. And so Google and other companies can get away with placing ads on really junky, low-quality places these brands wouldn't want to be associated with. Because in some cases, the brands and their agencies aren't really checking hard, which is, again, a mind-boggling piece to me.
0: So you have advertisers who both want to reach a certain type of consumer, let's say. And so they say, here are the kinds of sites that we're hoping, or the kinds of people we're hoping you'll find on these sites. And then separately, we want to make sure we don't go on these sorts of sites. And then I guess there's a third category that, Probably no matter who they are working with Google, everyone has a certain set of categories of sites that nobody wants their brand associated with. These these super sketchy, junky sites. Why should we even have to tell you?
1: And there's sites that violate Google's rules, like porn sites are not supposed to be in the Google Display Network. Sites violating copyright are not supposed to be in the Google Display Network. These are Google's own rules, whereas Google is saying to advertisers, sure, if you have your own specific list of block sites, let's upload that. But our rules say your ad shouldn't be appearing on porn. They shouldn't be appearing on copyright infringement. They shouldn't be appearing on you know graphic violence. These are Google's own rules that it's telling brands are the rules of the road for the sites and apps it works with. Um, And so there's an assumption, which is what you're kind of getting at, on the part of anyone spending money on Google that this stuff isn't supposed to be in there. And Google is saying this stuff breaks our rules and we, we work really hard to keep it out.
0: Now, years ago, I think it was the Jonathan Taplin interview when we talked about something that he discovered YouTube was doing. Of course, YouTube is owned by Google. YouTube was hosting terrorist recruiting videos and was placing advertisements for paper towels. That was a good example years ago to say no paper towel ad wants to be associated with terrorist recruiting, and yet one can see why Google might not work too hard, too quickly to remove those ads because Google is getting paid by having the paper towel ads on YouTube. And that interview was probably four or five years ago, Craig. And here we are now, and you have done this research. So let's get to the numbers. You've done this research on about a million accounts of partners that are part of the Google Display Network. These are the sites that signed up and said, yes, we'll take Google ads on our site. And as you say, it's strange for the leader in online advertising to make all this noise about everybody running an ad network should be very transparent so everyone can see who the partners are and who who are the sites who are advertising, who are accepting ads in the network. But we, Google, Mm -hmm. we're not going to tell you who's in our network. There's a million sites, and we're not going to tell you hardly any of them. So you dove in. There's this great chart in this ProPublica piece. These numbers showed that Google, out of the million or so...
1: It's, there's a, a million plus accounts, but actually they're associated with millions, an unknown number of websites and apps. These are just the individual partners who may themselves have multiple websites and apps.
0: Each partner could have... I didn't even think of that. Okay, so these are just the partners. It gets even worse, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> within the a million or so accounts... You said that from your research, Google discloses 140,000 accounts. Okay, fair enough. So they tell you who it is who's accepting the ads. Your research, Craig, with Ruth Talbot, you identified 763,000 accounts. Amazing. Even so, you write, there are 381,000 more partner accounts that are still unmatched, meaning they're still unidentified. So, And each yep. of those could have several sites. We, we could be talking about a million or more sites or apps out there
1: Easily. that
0: yeah. Google is cutting checks to that we don't know who they are. And, and by extension, ne- neither do the advertisers. You know, Nike paying a million dollars for the shoe and Google says, oh, trust us. We're only going to put your shoe ads in front of the, the, the consumers on the best sites. Trust mm-hmm. us oh, by the way, 381,000 of our partners have never been identified.
1: Yeah. In the position that Nike is in, Nike is going to spend the money and then it gets to find out at the end of the campaign sort of where its ads ran for the most part. And so there's this you have to have this blind faith to run the campaign because you don't get to know in advance where your ads might run. Google doesn't release the list. So you have to be like, okay, let's trust Google. Then only once you have spent the money... Do you then get the list saying, okay, here's the apps and sites where we placed your ads. But that, even that is not 100%. Even within that, you will get a report from Google that will not disclose a certain where a certain percentage of your money went. So there is the overall blinded kind of thing where you don't get to know in advance where your ads might appear. And then once you actually spend the money, yes, you get some disclosure, but there is always going to be a certain percentage of your money. Usually somewhere between like five and twenty percent could be even higher. Where Google is going to be like, we placed your ads, but we did them on sites, and we're it's just a a bundle here. We're not going to tell you which they were. They will just give you one line item saying, here's you know, two hundred thousand dollars of your budget went to a variety of sites. We're not going to tell you which ones. So all through the process. You have to trust Google, you have data obfuscated, information obfuscated. And because Google is so powerful and so dominant, a lot of people when we talk to ad buyers, they're like, we don't really have a choice, we have to deal with Google on at least some level. And that this is where the, you know, alleged monopolistic stuff comes in and where there's a lot more interest in Congress around this, because people feel like they don't really have another choice. And it's created a situation in this marketplace where, for example, Google can say like, yeah, we're not going to tell you who all of our partners are and what the sites and apps are. When you buy ads with us, we're not going to tell you where all of your money went. uh, And we're not going to disclose, you know, how we go about detecting ad fraud, how we go about keeping bad stuff out of our network. They release the least amount about their trust and safety efforts of anyone. So there's a lot, again, that is kind of a black box.
0: Now, I want to be clear here that My main concern in the scenario we're talking about with Nike running the ad campaign about the shoe is not (laughs) that Nike is wasting its money. Instead, my concern is what happens to us as a society? This is always the concern at Tectonic. What happens to all of us, the rest of us, when you have trillion-dollar companies that are misbehaving at this unimaginable scale? And as you said, Congress has begun to take note of Google's misbehavior here. Be right that last year, Senator Mark Warner and a bipartisan group of senators expressed alarm that Google and other companies share data about Americans with undisclosed foreign partners as part of this ad buying and selling process, and that billions of dollars flow through Google to unknown parties around the world. So you have both data and money flowing from Google to undisclosed third-party partners who could be anybody anywhere in the world. And then you have this quote I loved from Check My Ads Institute, which is a watchdog on the ad industry, Mm -hmm. saying that Google is, quote, sending billions of dollars every day to unknown individuals around the world. It is effectively one of the largest dark money transfers in the world. How should we think about this, Craig, when you have (laughs) one of the most powerful companies in the world acting as a monopoly always does, doing whatever it wants, not living up to its own stated industry standards, and making money by working with incredibly sketchy people who they won't even disclose to us, to the tune of billions of dollars every day.
1: This is, and this is one of the key things, and I'm glad you you brought it to sort of this level, because I am concerned about the sort of after effects of, of the corruption and obfuscation that exists in digital advertising. Like you, I think a lot of people don't really cry a lot of tears when they think of a brand wasting some of its ad dollars. That That is not a a harm and a worry that keeps people up at night. But I think you then have to of course, as the saying goes, follow the money and think, okay, but if billions of ad dollars are being stolen and siphoned off, and nobody knows really where they're going, what could be the potential dangers and after effects of that? And, you know, people who could be using this money for funding, potentially for terrorist activities, we know they fund crime, we know there are absolutely criminal operations, taking money, out of the digital ad ecosystem doing ad fraud. And so one part of it is it funnels money to crime syndicates. Digital advertising is funding crime because it is so out of control. And so that's one part of it. And then another part is, well, let's think about all these sketchy partners. So there's people sort of stealing the money straight up, but then there's folks who Google has accepted into its program and said, yep, we'll work with you, we'll cut you checks. Who's in there? Well, the story that we did actually before the one we're talking about now, really tried to quantify that in terms of disinformation. So we worked with fact-checking organizations on three continents, and again, we gathered a huge amount of data from them about the most fact-checked websites in their regions. And let me just highlight the Balkans. So we have uh, a few countries in the Balkans, Croatia, we have Bosnia, we have Serbia, we have, um, in some cases, you know, emerging and fragile democracies. And what we found was that Google was the primary and, in some cases, sole source of income for some really destabilizing massive sources of disinformation in these regions. The worst example we found was a website in Bosnia, which had ties to one of the most prominent genocide-denying separatist politicians in Bosnia who, according to many people around the world and in that country, is trying to tear the country apart and rip up the Dayton Accords that ended the war there. The website that is connected to him and his family was earning money with Google ads. We saw ads for brands like Guess and others on there. And this was happening. Google was placing ads on this website in spite of the fact that he and this specific website had both been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. He has also been sanctioned by the UK government and other places around the world. And so that is the kind of thing that happens when Google is not adhering to its policies and even enforcing, you know, in some cases, laws. You fund genocide-denying politicians around the world. You fund, you know, Brazil, as we're talking, you know, Brazilian parliament was invaded by Bolsonaro supporters recently. Well, when we looked at data in Brazil in cooperation with uh, researchers um, at a university in Rio de Janeiro... We found that some of the biggest sources of election lies and anti-vaccine content, surprise, surprise, they were earning money with Google Ads. And this was, in some cases, again, the primary or sole source of revenue on their websites, along with things like maybe membership or what have you. So that is what the problem is. When Google grows a network to this size and doesn't actually have the resources or the desire to enforce its policies around the world... It ends up funding these kinds of operations and it potentially ends up having very real world effects because this is the money that keeps these people in business. And so that, you know, if it's like, why should we care? That's why we should care. In addition to just the fact that hugely powerful companies should have some accountability.
0: And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Craig Silverman, national reporter from ProPublica, talking about his article co-written with Ruth Talbot from December 21 of last year, 2022. The article is called Porn, Piracy, Fraud, what lurks inside Google's black box ad empire. And I hope, having come to the halfway point of this interview, you now see what I was saying in my introduction, that yes, in fact, this is not just a problem with advertising and wasted money on the part of some corporations. The problem is, as the Check My Ads Institute put it, Google appears to be engaged in one of the largest dark money transfers in the world, sending billions of dollars a day to people who are unidentified, some of whom are having destabilizing effects to democracies and other communities around the world. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Craig Silverman here on Tectonic on WFMU. You say that Google may not have the resources or the desire to take care of this issue. And I think you and I both know, Craig, it's, they have the resources. It's the desire they don't have. I mean, if someone uploads something on YouTube that is copyright infringement of one of their powerful copyright holders, a, a, a Disney-level company, that will get taken down within milliseconds. Oh, look how quickly our AI found this unauthorized use of mickey mouse bam down it goes but yes. you have someone who as you say the u.s and uk governments have both what frozen the assets or said officially nobody worked with this guy and was it bosnia you said he's uh, yes. ripping up the democracy no one's allowed to work with him google says well we'll work with him we're cutting him checks every day hey here you go here you go here you go That's not a lack of resources. That's a lack of desire on Google's part to cut back on its dealings with these these awful characters. I mean, just as a side note, Craig, you talked about Google working with crime syndicates. And my immediate thought is, can we identify who the primary crime syndicate is? Because I I have a company in mind who's the true crime syndicate, but I'll just leave that there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, on the crime syndicate piece of it, you know, I've done investigations in the past where it's been, you know, groups of people who really understand digital advertising well, just stealing millions of dollars. Uh, and so it's not it's I don't think it's a case where Google knows they have have decided internally we are working with the crime syndicate and we're still doing it. I think, to your point, there are decisions about where they spend money, where they invest resources, where they put oversight and where they don't. And in one of our stories, we spoke to a former Google insider with some insight into these kind of trust and safety things. And they said, look, it is at the end of the day, what motivates Google to invest money in this area? Um, it's concerns about regulation. So, are you a, a country that could regulate them in a way that hurts their business? Uh, you know, is there a risk for bad press? So there are things that factor in along with the bottom line, which is they're a publicly traded company. They need to hit their numbers. So if they suddenly had to triple their costs of content moderation in the Balkans and had to triple their costs of content moderation in Brazil and on and on, you know, is is Google going to sign off on that? Probably not, because they're trying to run these operations as profitably as possible without flaring up concern about regulation, about bad press, about scaring off advertisers. And if they're not under pressure, they're going to maintain the status quo. And I think the last thing I'll note on that is we showed clearly in our previous reporting that English language, not surprisingly, English language seems to get a higher standard of oversight than other languages. And when I say other languages, I don't mean just like A language you might expect google not to be investing in like you know what people are speaking in uh, croatia and serbia and bosnia but spanish was alarming to us the lack of oversight there so i think you know this inequality that we see around the world it plays out among how these platforms choose to enforce their policies
0: once again i i have trouble having a lot of empathy for a giant trillion dollar corporation that's trying to make its numbers i know there are some business reasons at play but i look at this and i think this company is investing in the things that will keep it out of the press and that will keep it out of congressional hearings to avoid regulation, but otherwise, it's growth at any cost. They'll do anything. They'll sell anything. They'll work with anyone. And it's not just Google. I've done shows on Facebook that does the same thing, and through its inaction, you know, there's a genocide in Myanmar. Oops, oh well, but at least we hit our numbers. I mean, I look at at the absolute lack of ethics, no qualms whatsoever in senior leadership to work with the worst characters who are having the worst outcomes, on, both in this country and in, as you say, fragile democracies around the world. And I think to myself, what is the difference in the end between a Google and a criminal enterprise? I mean, really, categorically, what is the difference? I mean, one of them is listed on the stock market and one of them is not. One of them is hailed as as a great innovator, and one of them is maybe uh, on the run from Interpol. I don't know. But really, beyond those, those surface differences and those characteristics, what is the difference in their behavior, in their outcomes that they're creating in the world? They're both doing anything that they can do with not a shred of ethics in order to make a dollar. I mean- this is out of scope <laughs> for your piece, Craig. I didn't bring you on to talk philosophy of, of ethics and corporations, but since we are talking about crime syndicates, and, and you, you mentioned in the piece someone's quoted saying, well, there are good people who work within Google who are trying to do the right thing, but the system just prevents them from right. doing that. I'm not saying everyone at, at Google is this, is this mustache-twirling criminal or something. I'm just saying Google as a system, as an organization, and this flows up to senior leadership because they do have the power to make changes there. They are responsible for the activities of that company and for them to knowingly continue to juice their numbers by working with fraudsters, people who are criminals who are clearly trying to rip up democracy. What does that say about the kind of organization that Google is in the end?
1: Well, let me, um, you know, let, let me offer what sort of Google says around this stuff. And then let me speak a little bit from my perspective, I guess, of having spent now close to a decade of reporting a fair amount on these companies and speaking to a lot of people inside them. Because I think this idea of like, how does how does the corporation, how does the system end up, you know, creating these kinds of outcomes and tolerating this stuff? You know, Google, when Google responds to our stories, uh, they will often, you know, they stopped monetizing that sanctioned site <laughs> after we reached out to them uh they will remove copyright infringing sites and others uh so they they took some action but there were lots of articles and lots of websites and other places we felt were clearly in violation of their policies that they said no these are okay and so it's a it's a judgment call and they are marking their own homework they are the judge and they are the jury it's their policies and however they want to do it but you know they they say as a blanket thing we take this stuff seriously we invest heavily in this stuff those are the things they say and I will just say, you know, when I speak to people inside these companies, uh, I think there's a lot of very smart, very well-meaning people inside them. And this is something about institutions in democracy and in, in society as a whole. You can have institutions with a lot of well-meaning people that still create harm um, and you can have and so you talk about leadership, and I think leadership is very accountable for this stuff, or they need to be accountable for this stuff. It makes me think a lot about Facebook in that the early days of Facebook, and I know this is maybe a cliche, but it matters. What was the culture that Mark Zuckerberg created? Well, he started Facebook as a really gross tool for rating the hotness of people. That's the, that's the origin of Facebook. And then as it became a social network, you know, it was move fast and break things. He created and established a culture that was uh, growth above everything else, business cards, I'm CEO, that had a certain amount of flouting and rule breaking and not caring about it. And as much as I think Mark Zuckerberg has changed a lot as a person, the culture that was established early on at Facebook, I think we saw you know, the results of that as people started to wake up to the abuses and things that it had created and enabled and didn't really care to stop or pay attention to. And so I think there's been a lot of just kind of benign neglect of, well, we we optimize for this at our organization. So that's what we all care about because that helps us hit our numbers. That helps us get our bonuses. That's what makes everybody happy. And all this other stuff of disinformation and threats to democracy, nobody optimized for that. Nobody was focused on that. And leadership were not saying we have to care about this until basically around the end of 2016. And so a lot of them are playing catch up. And so I think, you know, again, I don't look at them as kind of purely evil evil organizations or organizations with evil goals. I think about what is the culture and what are the priorities and, and what, what do people need to do inside these organizations to succeed and how are they incentivized? What do they pay attention to and what do they not pay attention to? And I think about this as well in newsrooms. There are bad incentives that exist in newsrooms that lead to bad journalism. Um, we're, you know, we have our faults as well. But within these organizations, they are so big, their scale is so uncontrollable and unknowable that it requires something to change. And governments feel like regulation is a part of that. But my, my big problem is like, I don't see, I've seen a lot of progress in these areas from these organizations, but I haven't seen a transformative change whereby they have, for example, said to the markets, you know, we are going to have to spend more time on this than that and follow through with it. Because Zuckerberg did say that at one point, I think it was 2017 or 2018, we have to invest more in trust and safety, it's going to cost some money. And that was like one time he said that and they invested some. And then they've, they've actually been disbanding some teams and doing things. So, you know, that's sort of my perspective on it is like this system and the culture and the leadership and how they create these extremely negative, harmful outcomes. It is a very old story in a sense, but what's different about it and what's relevant to the show is we're talking about these massive socio-technology infrastructures that are vastly different than anything we've ever had. They operate on a global scale, unlike anything we've ever had the responsibility for these companies to have control over these systems is more important than arguably anything ever before and yet we see them falling it down on the job again and again and again and ultimately in the case of google and others you know they won't even give you the data to help you even you know highlight the problems you have to go out like us and spend months and months trying to cobble it together to even start to point out some of the problems that google itself hasn't been paying attention to
0: perfectly said perfectly said Craig, although maybe you're a little more charitable about whether these companies are, are evil <laughs> <laughs> than I would be. Um, but I agree with you that these are the results of these companies investing in some things and frankly, ignoring others until there's yeah. enough bad PR blowback to force them. I would say regulation, but there has been almost no regulation of the tech giants yet. I think that the key point there that I really am aligned with is what you were saying about the difference in scale in these tech giants. I mean, in in this piece, <laughs> you were able to uncover the identities of 700,000 plus accounts of partners in the Google Display Network. This is a different scale from a standard oil, let's say, from, from the Gilded yeah. Age. These companies... Bestride the globe. And through the use of, of of the code on their servers, they have daily impact on the life or death of democracies, of communities, of individual people. To me, it's outrageous that these senior leaders look at this if they look at it at all and they conclude: well, that's a shame that we're having these terrible outcomes on the entire human race um but we got to make our numbers i just can't fathom how someone can do that and and sleep at night but that's just me
1: look we we have a capacity as humans to tell ourselves a story that is very convincing to ourselves and if you look at the marketing and approach from facebook and from google and the stories they tell they talk one of the biggest stories they tell is we are empowering small businesses our ability to let these small businesses target people, interact with them is transformative. And you know there's there's a lot about digital marketing and digital advertising that is transformative. That is is genuinely different and particularly for small operations. I mean, you know, newspaper advertising has fallen off a cliff because genuinely for a local small business, these digital approaches are better. Um, that's the truth as much as as I hate to see the death of of you know local newspapers they didn't have an offering that rivaled them and so the story that they tell is you know yes we have there's some harm and there's some problems but look at the economic growth and opportunity and look at how we have empowered people to talk to each other look at how activists can you know can unite people look at how small businesses can grow and so it's not hard to in fact they are oriented to find and tell those stories The stories that you tell, the things that you focus on can absolutely change your perspective on the world. And so for them, that's what they think about. In addition to, yes, hitting their numbers and other responsibilities, um, they have an entire division of their companies oriented towards telling the story of the good that they do. And they do create some economic benefit. There's no question about it. There are some good things that have happened to it. But I mean, you have to look at the whole picture, right? And you have to really think about what you're able to sit with and tolerate.
0: I'm just struck by your ability to stay positive, Craig, after you spent how many months doing the work that Google should have done in the first place and still bumping up against the the extreme arrogance of that company, even as you're delivering to all of us this great piece of work teaching all of us about what's actually happening in the online ad market and Google continues to ignore it and just wait until it blows up to a certain point before they'll put any attention on it. And yet you're still able to argue their side and explain empathetically why someone might think that Google is actually worth trusting.
1: Right. Well, I think I think to do the job, you, you have to be able to to empathize and put yourself in other people's shoes but also I think to do the reporting accurately if you decide this company is evil you know then you really risk as a reporter saying things that are incorrect going to an extreme that your work doesn't support part of doing good work involves putting yourself in you know someone else's shoes in the target's shoes understanding their framework and not you know, in some cases there is no humanity, but, you know, there is humanity and there is something that is very true and fundamental about companies and institutions and systems and culture that is manifesting at a, you know, a really alarming level here. But uh, listen, do I get frustrated that, as you say, we're doing the job they should be doing? Do I get frustrated that, you know, there was a lot of what we did that was hard, but there were times where we just found the clearly violating stuff. And I was like, this isn't, the patterns here are not super complicated. If I worked at Google... On day three, I'd probably spot this stuff, you know? And so there is frustration for me that they have a huge amount of money. They have lots of smart people there. And yet some of the stuff that is obvious, that is easy to spot, some of the stuff that in our article we show Google had the the data itself to see the problems and chose not to use it, that to me is inexcusable. I mean, if you want to hear me get hard about something, it's like the fact that Google itself has the copyright infringement data. Where itself has removed the links from some of these websites from its own search engine because it's infringing and yet google still places ads on those exact same pages in those exact same sites there is literally no excuse for that that is laziness um and and that is negligence in my opinion uh, and you know they don't really they didn't really have an ex- explanation for that except to say you know we're reviewing the sites you sent um they won't explain why they don't use data from fact checkers to help you know keep ads off of violating content and they will not explain why they don't use their own copyright infringement takedown data to keep ads off of that same content they've removed from search and that to me is the kind of thing where I will be hard on because I just don't there's no excuse for that it's so easy for them to actually do that in an automated way and they have chosen not to
0: <laughs> i'm laughing cuz you finally got there, Craig. You got the tectonic <laughs> rant.
2: <laughs>
0: Welcome, brother. Um, <laughs> well, look, Craig. You and Ruth did a great job in this story. Again, people can find the link to this ProPublica story on the playlist, and I want everyone to go click through and read it. Co-written by my guest, Craig Silverman, national reporter for ProPublica. Craig. Really, thanks for taking all this time to speak with me today and hope you'll be back on Tectonic sometime.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me.
0: To Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 10 minutes of the show, and then the great Dave Mandel will come on with his show. It's complicated. It's a prog rock show. You should listen to it. We just heard my interview with Craig Silverman, national reporter at ProPublica. He, along with let me bring up my yes uh he along with ruth talbot wrote a story in propublica on december 21st 2022 called porn pride see i almost said it i almost miss said it again (laughs) porn piracy fraud what lurks inside google's black box ad empire and uh i think Craig made a very strong case, and I, I hope you were able to listen to the entire interview to understand both how the ad business works, as Craig walked us through it in th- at the beginning, and then as the questions unrolled to see how Google's corruption ends up harming communities and whole countries and regions around the world. Now, it would be one thing, and I think th- this is something that I, I took away from the interview with, with Craig. It would be one thing if Google, you know, on being alerted to these, these uh, horrible downsides, was, was springing into action, forming groups and publishing what they were doing, keeping everyone up to date about their progress, let's say, in, <clears throat> in taking down the accounts or following the US government's lead, let's say, in freezing the accounts of people who are, in, in Craig's words, ripping up a fragile democracy in the Balkans. Um, it would be one thing if Google was uh, abiding by its own industry standards, that, that it has co-written with other companies and expects other companies to follow. It would be another thing if Google was not doing business with copyright theft uh, sites or porn sites, according to their own terms and conditions. You know, it, w- it, w- it would be, it would be a different thing if if Google was showing a commitment to live up to its standards. But of course, it's not. And this and I can't say I'm surprised. Like, can you believe this? <laughs> I'm I'm completely unsurprised. I, the only thing I guess that that is, if if it's not surprising, at least it's it's notable in this case is that I'm I'm understanding the true scale of Google's corruption in its ad business. I, I wasn't I knew that Google's ad business was corrupt. I know that Google as a company is corrupt. I mean I've known that I've been saying that for years. We should shut this company down. Uh, for its corruption but I was not aware that it was it was so big that they were sending billions of dollars a day to unidentified organizations and people and in some cases known crime networks I mean known criminal actors that Google is knowingly sending money to and in some cases the money that these criminals get from Google is 100% of their revenue do you understand, friends, that there are criminal actors out there who are fully, wholly, one hundred percent dependent on Google's corruption to fund their efforts to rip up democracy, and and commit theft and, and and much worse things out there? And it's due to Google allowing this to continue, that that this crime continues to flourish. Now why would google want to be so corrupt are they just as as i you know as we talked about in the interview are they just twirling mustaches out there in in silicon valley and just saying oh we just love being evil we just love being of course not it's the business model it's the business model so if you go back to the example with nike a buyer or let's say an advertiser like Nike he, he, and Craig lists a bunch of companies you've heard of. And these are significant in the story because these are the organizations that have giant sums of money that go into Google. It's not that I'm, as I said, it's not that I'm crying for, for Nike's waste of money. It's uh, I'm looking at a giant pile of money that goes from a corporation like a Nike into Google. Google then dispenses some of it, some percentage of it, out to their advertising partner, some of which, as I, I say, Google knows are, are criminal networks or criminal actors in some way, and Google keeps the rest. And so the, the more Google polices the, these, these display network partners and the more Google cuts down on its own corruption, the more, the more that cuts into Google's numbers. And don't you understand, in Silicon Valley, we have one value, we have one ethic growth at any cost. And if someone screams loud enough about corruption and death and genocide and and ripping up democracy. Well, we'll evaluate it with our PR team. And if it looks bad enough that it might make us look bad in that it will affect our growth at any cost, then maybe we'll, we'll play a little whack-a-mole and put a, a little spot treatment on that one so that PR, uh, that PR complaint goes away. But otherwise, the system remains the same and our corrupt money machine keeps spinning. That's the Google model. So I would I would recommend that you go and you click through from the playlist to read this piece, Porn Piracy Fraud, uh, from December 21st, 2022, written by Craig Silverman and Ruth Talbot. And uh, as Craig said, he's been covering ad fraud for years. And so there, there's a link to Craig's work and his Wikipedia entry on the playlist. You can go back and, and read Craig's other work. He's doing great work, and I really appreciate him spending time with us. Um, That's about all the time I have for you this evening. I hope you have learned something and are ready to follow my homework. I'm going to give you in a second. But first, I just want to remind you, you're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County, and 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, say it with me, friends. Get off Google. And I have a little surprise, little treat for you as we go out. We're going to be listening to a band called Time Trout. Um, we're going to start a few seconds into the song to a part I really like. This is a song called Smart City. It's from their album Stuck Like Jane Austen, thanks to, uh, thanks to Brother Blumen for pointing me to this track and you'll never guess who one of the musicians is in Time Trout. Yes, it is the host of It's Complicated himself, the great Dave Mandel. Have a great week everybody and enjoy the song.
3: Where the lights go on, wherever there are people, where the lights... thing to do was spying on you
2: And that's the way it goes. Bill Bruford and Yes to start the show as usual. Good evening, folks, friends, and neighbors. I'm Dave Mandel. The show is called It's Complicated. I'm here every Monday evening between the hours of 7 and 8, sandwiched, shoved right in between Mark Hurst and Tectonic and Vocal Fry, which follows me at 8. Pleasure to be here always. And. Tonight, I'm going to start with someone, you know, it's funny, I was, I was, I keep a list of, you know, things I, things I want to play on the show, and a long list, and I, <laughs> amazingly, this gentleman was not on the list. How did I, I just, I completely forgot about him. I was down in the, in the uh, WFMU basement this evening, right? We have the. You, you may or may not know about the basement here at FMU. Basically, records that <laughs> records that. Uh, how do I put it? You know, records that are grandfathered out. You know, p- put in retirement. It's a, it's a sort of retirement home for records that probably aren't ever going to be played, <laughs> but they're still accessible. DJs can and do go down there all the time to pull stuff out of the basement, but to make room for. Uh, for the kids joining, you know, being being slotted into the record library here, older and weirder and less played records go down in the basement. So I was down in the basement looking for something, doesn't matter what. And it was, it was like, it was just a gift from the gods. Staring me right in the face there was the Pete Sinfield album, Still. And Pete Sinfield was not on my list. Somehow I, you know... In the, in the several months I've been doing this show, I just f- completely forgot about Pete sinfield which is funny <laughs> hilarious because he he is uh, it's a tough it's a tough contest but he's you know one of the progiest people I would say in a lot of ways He was an English uh what poet lyricist Pete sinfield wrote the lyrics to the first King Crimson album, which, oh my God, you know, this is like the, you know, the progiest album ever, possibly, quite possibly, and uh, was just kind of like a, I don't know what, like a spiritual advisor to the band. He was, he was like a member of the, a member of King Crimson, but didn't actually play an instrument. Anyway, a real, <laughs> a real hippie and a very Prague, you know, sort of prog poet. So anyway, I'd completely forgotten about Pete Sinfield somehow. And there it was, looking me in the face when I went down to the basement saying, Take me out of here, Dave. Bring me upstairs. Play me on your show tonight. Of course, I'm happy to comply. So we're going to hear a track from the album, Still, from Pete Sinfield, kind of a quiet one. And following that, what else? Following that I'm going to play something from the group Here and Now. Here and Now are best known probably as they, they were friends of Gong. I played Gong I think just on last week's show, right? And uh and on several of the Gong albums the the backup in the in the early mid 70s the backup band on on some of the gong albums, in fact, some as they got equal billing, was a group called Here and Now. So they were very much in the gong mold, also, you know, very hippie. uh, But they put out a few of their own records, so we're going to hear something by them, Here and Now. Uh, So, all right, Pete Sinfield, a track from the album Still from 1973. And then we'll hear something from Here and Now, the Here and Now band from, I think, 1978, And that'll do it. See you in a few minutes.
4: Eagle reads the flight of birds and writes upon the sand gold water.